this is a lecture recording for uh, women in empowerment in contemporary India for the chapter title Gendering Caste Through Ambedkar's Writing uh, written by Momita Sarkar this is on page number 182 in the book and uh, what Mamita Sarkar has done is that she has primarily discussed one particular and uh, important book which explores a relationship and a connection in between um, the, uh, the political as well as sort of, uh, you know, proto-feminist or feminist views that Ambedkar had. So how he sort of made sense of the way that women's rights were understood or, uh, you know, denied to them in the Indian political system before freedom during the uh, during the writing of the constitution. He introduced the Hindu Code Bill, which, uh, which in its form in which uh, Ambedkar had suggested, which would have brought about a lot of reforms for women, were, was actually rejected in the constitution by the majority of the people, uh, you know, citing the reasons that it would destabilize the primarily Hindu um, you know, Indian population. Um, so all of these kind of tensions which exist in between, um, you know, what Ambedkar thought as a political thinker, as a lawyer, and uh, the way in which he contributed to this whole discussion of women's rights and how an empowerment of the condition of women, uh, more than just a psychological understanding of it at, a, at the socio-psychological level, could also be done, could have been done if Ambedkar would have had his way through a legal system as well. So uh, the chapter begins with the differentiation in between caste class and where Dalits fit into this kind of, you know, this kind of a structure. Um, how caste functions is, I think, everybody is aware of how the caste, um, you know, how, what the caste system is. It's called the Chaturvarn. Chaturvarn is, of course, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas and the Shudras. I'm not going to go into the discussion of how each is different from the other. The um, I think it's common knowledge. Unfortunately, those are the things that we are aware of rather than a lot of other logical things that we should be. Uh, however, if you don't know what the Chaturvarn system is, uh, please go through the discussion on page number 182. It's fairly simple. If you don't understand again, uh, you can always get back to me about it. Now, um, the part where perhaps we need to discuss or the thing that we need to discuss uh, in all of this is one, of course, is the fact that uh, Manu Smriti, uh, the text which has been written by Manu, uh, is usually taken to be, uh, it's a religious, uh, sort of a religious and legal treatise, uh, and that is taken to be the foundation of the, um, of, of the social uh, structure which, uh, which a Vedic Hindu society actually follows. A lot of the social, social um, principles, a lot of the legal formulations given by Manu, are used as fundamental validations for the way in which the society functions. And both Mamita Sarkar, who has written this chapter, as well as Ambedkar to a very large extent, were critical of how Manu, um, you know, um, structured the Indian society in that sense and how it is fundamentally and um, at the heart of it, it's, it's a discriminatory system that it propagates and it validates. Uh, it's not just about what is written in the text, but how this text has been used as a validation for further systems of oppression and further systems of discrimination which have spawned out of it and which have, which have in, in certain senses, have been the result of socio-historical changes. Uh, but they have found valid validation in a lot of what Manu has written in the Manu Smriti. Now, um, uh, according to Manu, if all the castes follow what he calls the Varnashram 
dharm which is uh, varna is the caste system shram is uh, work or labor uh, and dharm is the is is the duties that you have which are divided on the basis of your caste so technically and theoretically people who um, sort of people who defend the caste system they say that the caste system works because it is divided not on the basis of birth ideally but it's divided on the basis of profession so it divides the society on the basis of the work that they do or the contribution the social or the intellectual or the physical or the you know, or the monetary or the service contribution that different castes make to the society so in that sense it makes uh, you know it, it it makes for a for a well ordered society in which every caste knows exactly what they have to do rather than a disordered society right uh, but the reality of the system is of course and it's i think this this point does not need a lot of elaboration the reality of the system is of course that most of the lower caste people actually turn out to be the lower class people as well so here the difference between caste and class is of course the caste is on the basis of the varna system the class is of course on the basis of how much money you have so most of the people who belong to lower classes uh, especially the shutras they are the ones who have the least amount of money and because power is associated or attributed according to the money that a particular person or a particular group of people or a particular caste have and so the shudras also end up being the least influential and the least um, cared for and the most discriminated against portions of the society now uh, where do dalits actually fit into this whole criteria um technically it is a chaturvarn chatur is four varn is the caste so they are supposed to be four castes but usually there is a fifth category which is sort of Uh, added to the chaturvarna these are called the atishudras these are people who are even below the shudras within the caste system and this is theoretically according to what manu talks about right so um the atishudras there have been a lot of different names which have been used for the atishudras uh, the panchams the anta antyaj antyaj they call the antyaj sorry or the dalit and dalit is the term which usually is uh, you know it's the most popular term which is um which is at least uh, which is identify identifiable popularly identifiable so um uh, and a lot has been talked about a lot of discussion has gone into what uh, you know what the caste actually means and the politics around uh, you know um, how much importance or how much leniency they should be given within the social system people have their own views about it uh, but this is basically a fundamental discussion of uh, how women figure into this whole discussion of the caste system and especially for a community like the dalits who don't actually belong to the social structure of the chaturvarna if the society mainstream society is made up of the chaturvarns then the atishudras uh, or the dalits as they are usually and popularly um, known right they actually don't even fall into the mainstream social structure which might have been a different story if the number of these people would have been any lesser than they actually are not that then their issues would not have been important but seeing as there are such a large number of this um this group of people and still for them to be considered outside of or marginalized from the mainstream society and for it to be considered okay and normalized that is something that perhaps should be looked at for sure but even within this class of people who are marginalized from normative society from mainstream society the women of this particular community the women the dalit women 
are even further marginalized because between the between the relationship that uh, you know the dalit men and women share women are even lower than the dalit men who are any way lower within the caste as well as the class system of the indian society so they are what is usually called doubly marginalized or doubly you know they fall under the double hegemony in that sense right so the word dalit usually it means uh, now the word has actually come to mean somebody who is broken or somebody who is downtrodden and he you know somebody who cannot get worse than they actually are and um, to really understand exactly uh, what validation is used for keeping this large number of people in the kind of conditions that they actually are which stops them from ever even um, attaining a sense of self or individuality so that they could at least try to make their living conditions or their economic or their social or political conditions better one has to sort of understand the kind of hold that religion actually has we take it for granted that what religion talks about is morality in terms of what ramayana talks about in terms of the ideals that religion you know sort of gives to us. us either in the figure of the gods like um ram or uh, krishna and these are also discussed towards the end of the chapter but these kind of ideals have a glaring sort of a you know uh, they have um they have a glaring thing missing which is the which is the fact that there are it, it is so bound by the rules of the chaturvarn that there is no mention of the outcasts per se and even when there is a mention it actually validates the kind of marginalization that is meted out to these people so when the texts and the rituals and the structures and the scriptures that people look up to to understand what is right what is wrong how to understand the moral compass of the universe when those kind of texts validate this kind of discrimination and it 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 tells them that it's okay to look at these people as particularly marginalized and it's their rightful place to be marginalized and discriminated against then it actually validates a system of oppression and that is something that we have to look at from a completely different perspective if nothing else and at least from a humane perspective so what happens is that religion is of course uh, especially the way that manu talks about it it is usually seen as a preservation of brahmin domination now it's very interesting that most of the kings are actually kshatriyas uh, but they are not the ones who have the most amount of power people who have the most power or the group of people who have most amount of power are the brahmins because they control the knowledge of the scriptures and they control how religion is to be understood for and and they hence through their control of the scriptures they control how morality is understood they control how power how knowledge is understood in the society who is going to have more power who is going to have less power what is more powerful is physical prowess more powerful or is intellectual prowess or uh, you know um, intellectual dexterity is that more important and that more powerful they are the ones who control how people think and that's why they have the most amount of power that kind of knowledge to shape how people think to shape how people are going to understand morality and morality is basically just an understanding of what is right and what is wrong what are the things that you can't stand what are the things that you think should not be tampered with whether oppression or discrimination of you know in between the genders in between the castes whether that should be allowed it should not be allowed and how strongly you feel about that kind of discrimination if you think it's morally wrong if you think it's morally right 
right and how far are you going are, are you willing to go to prove that kind of faith prove that kind of a mindset that is basically decided by uh, people who control knowledge people who have that kind of power to create mindsets and that's why brahmins have the most amount of power and a lot of what is given in manusmriti and the way that we understand uh, religion is also patriarchal but it's also brahmanical patriarchal so men control uh, scriptures when you talk about the uh, varn system women don't actually figure into it because women were not given access to most professions even today women are not given access to a lot of professions how many female pandits for example do you see even if the goddesses are women the men who can worship them are almost always men very 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 few women can actually become you know pandits they can actually conduct any kind of uh, religious rituals because women are still considered to be impious or impure and intellectually inferior to men who were the only ones who were allowed that kind of access to religion to morality to scriptures and so on and so forth now there are a couple of examples uh, given about um, you know about um, there are a couple of examples given in the text on page number 183 about the condition of dalits especially under the peshwa rule in maharashtra these are just examples so i'm not going to discuss that so um, dalits actually uh, uh, manusmriti talks about dalits uh, and this is a quotation the last six lines on page number 183 dalits as described in manusmriti were worse than animals they had no respect no identity and foremost no recognition as human beings they were considered to be lesser than human beings if you guys remember the discussion that we had about uh, you know the introductory chapter to uh, feminist and gender theory when i talked about uh, mary wollstonecraft uh, women were also fighting for exactly the same kind of uh, acknowledgement just acknowledge that they are at least human beings so that you know everything else can build up on that until date there are a lot of places there are a lot of communities in which dalits are considered to be on an evolutionary scale even lower than human beings and uh, i mean it might sound very very archaic and something that doesn't happen in the modern world in which we live in but that is unfortunately it is true uh, in the last 50 to 60 years however because of primarily because of the kind of work that ambedkar has been able to do primarily because of his personal achievements and the kind of work that he has been able to do in creating a sense of dalit pride and uh, through um, uh, through a particular movement called the dalit panthers movement it started in maharashtra in 1972 and it produced a large number of dalit intellectuals right people who were rearticulating what it is to be a dalit and taking away some of the discriminatory and uh, insulting representations of dalit in mainstream uh, society if you actually think about it very very clearly the kind of power that knowledge has the kind of power that is um that that is inherent in the ability to be able to create an image of somebody else is perhaps the greatest kind of power that you can have over somebody so dalits were not obviously because they were marginalized to such a large extent they were not given the power um to talk about themselves or what they wanted to say about themselves or uh, about having an individual identity any kind of legal right at least within the framework of manusmriti or even till today even though they fall under the constitution and they're supposed to have as many rights as the brahmins do but the caste system still prevails and in a lot of places the legal system is subservient to the caste system so uh, 
if if dalits don't have access to education if they don't have access to spaces where they can talk about themselves as human beings where they can rearticulate their identities not as being the you know the the last and the lowest dregs or portions of society but as actual people who have as much right to uh, bettering their living standards as anybody else in the society then they are not going to be able to look at themselves as anything else but the way that brahmins look at themselves because that's the only perception of themselves that they have you remember we talked about the concept of social engineering when we talked about women and the same concept of social engineering also functions as far as dalits are concerned but what dalit panther movement did from the 1970 onwards is that they very very aggressively sometimes a little too aggressively perhaps but very very aggressively they fought against these kind of stereotypical representations of dalit and they've tried to mitigate the effect that this kind of representation has on dalits everywhere they started re- they started creating positive um, images and positive examples of dalits who were able to read who were able to gain intellectual knowledge who were able to make something of themselves ambedkar is the foremost and perhaps the most uh, uh, prominent example of that and by taking inspiration from that uh, you know they are able to at least undo some of the damage that manusmriti has been able to do for the last 2000 years of course it's it's i mean it's it's not comparable at all but still at least the process has begun at least there is an acknowledgement or at least people can say that the fact that um, you know the fact which has been or the construct actually i'm sorry the social construct that dalits are not capable of intellectual activity at all has obviously been undone and inverted uh, by the life story and life history also of ambedkar so in that sense that has already been done and the dalit panther movement has done a lot um to um you know to invert some of the others um prevailing discriminatory stereotypes also and of course it's work that definitely needs to be done now the rest of the chapter is actually a discussion of a very uh, of a seminal and a very very important work by somebody called sharmila regge uh, she is an important critic in the area and her ta- and her uh, book is actually entitled it's called against the madness of manu and what she does is that she talks about um, the way in which ambedkar uh, and his political philosophies and his intellectual and religious philosophies he was a buddhist and he converted to buddhism because there was at least a possibility of finding some manner of self respect in buddhism the indian uh, the hindu caste system was of course it did not accord him any respect despite all of his personal achievements uh so how his political religious and um, philosophical policies and ideologies how they in intersect with his uh, you know with a lot of work that he did uh for creating laws which were favorable towards women a lot of the discrimination that was meted out to women all of these or, or you know all of the years uh, ambedkar tried to undo some of them and rege actually discusses a lot of that um in the text Uh, she starts by talking about the kherlanji massacre in which two dalit women mother and daughter were paraded naked and they were raped and um, the the men of the family were also lynched by a whole village a whole village actually came together um and this uh, the kherlanji um, village is in maharashtra and maharashtra is one of the places where the dalits have had a very very bad run right so um that happened but 
but what reggae is really talking about is not just the event is not just the incident and because there are a lot of incidents like this which happen almost every day it's very unfortunate but it does what she does highlight however is the way in which most people did not even react to such a heinous crime and that happens because people are so because violence against dalits is so normalized we're so used to uh, you know um, hearing about these kind of instances we don't even think that that is something that should be spoken out against and that normalization of violence and that normalization of discrimination is very very problematic in fact rege says that there are a lot of feminists who are not dalit feminists but they are women who have been fighting or who had been fighting even at the time who had been fighting against the discriminations which have been meted out to women by uh, texts by the validity of texts like manusmriti and by the society and yet women who have faced oppression all of their life women who have been discriminated against either directly indirectly overtly subtly emotionally economically even those women who've suffered this kind of discrimination all of their lives even they fail to recognize how discrimination against another set of people is also discrimination and it also needs to be talked about so while it happens to yourself it's okay but if it happens to somebody else you're so normalized that it seems like it's 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 a normal part of life and that's definitely problematic and that kind of normalization is perhaps uh, it can only be undone or it can only be remedied at least for future generations uh, only and only if it is first acknowledged that this is discrimination then she talks about the devdasis um devdasis were the first born female child of a dalit family and these they were called devdasis dev as in god dasi as in the servant of god and these girls were actually married off to gods even before they you know attained puberty even before their teens they were actually married off to gods and they were sent to live in temples serving the gods and this was considered to be in repayment of the sin of being a dalit because you've been born in this condition of eternal sin so you have to pay for it by sacrificing your first girl child and of course how it ends up for the devdasis is this is a fairly common kind of um, you know um, this is a fairly common practice they devdasis end up being the priests mistresses they're exploited of course emotionally physically sexually a lot of them actually end up in prostitution and in fact the children who are born out of um, you know who are born to devdasis who are usually the priests children they are actually they are the ones who are actually called harijan they they are not given the status of the father so and and this is this is a glaring sort of a contradiction in a patrilineal uh, you know society where uh, when women get married they uh, they take on the caste of the surname of and the life of the husband the children who are born to uh, to a family they take on the caste the surname the you know the the cultural heritage of the father but for the devdasis that kind of a patrilineal right is also denied these were the kids who were usually called harijans hari is god and jan is the you know sort of the children of god in that sense and um, harijans initially were the community of uh, you know illegitimate children who were born out of this kind of union of the devdasis and the priests so these 
even the children are uh, you know they're given a separate caste in a certain sense and they are also driven out of the society but it's a euphemism please look up what euphemism is it's a euphemism because it actually hides the true nature of the socio economic status that these children are given of course for no fault of their own but that's how the caste system works right so murege uh, actually and this is at the bottom of 184 she asserts that irrespective of numerous allegations and comments that ambedkar did nothing to ameliorate the condition of women under brahmanic patriarchy um, it's actually not true he uh, talked about it a lot he tried to remedy the um, remedy the problems of and uh, the discriminations that women faced a lot and that's basically what the rest of the chapter is about but this is the central argument that she makes so please you know sort of remember that on 185 um there is a discussion of what the you know what the status of women was in um or still is actually under brahmanic patriarchy um of course women are discriminated against if the if the configuration of the society or the categorization of the society division is on the basis of profession and women don't have access to professions they're not allowed to um you know access professions at least as freely as men are uh even in today's day and date uh, women usually have access to only certain kinds of professions which are considered to be good or convenient enough for women these are considered to be professions which are too easy which even women can do they're never intellectually challenging they are similarly they're not as economically rewarding also but that is for the general people the urbanized kind of population but as far as dalit women are concerned they are uh, they are of course they are doubly um they they are doubly subjugated that is a phrase that is usually used it's on 185 rege actually says that there is a there are a lot of discrepancy in discrepancies in how uh, manu sort of talks about uh, intermarriage and then she talks about two terms called exogamy and endogamy and this whole discussion about um, you know the politics of endogamy or exogamy that leads to a wider understanding or an in-depth understanding of how um you know either in in either case whether it was endogamy that was being practiced or exogamy that was being practiced wherever the fault lines lay wherever there was a transgression wherever there was some sort of um you know uh, some sort of crime against the laws of manu the fault was almost always laid down at the feet of not at the feet of but the fault always lay with women right and that's basically how the system functioned so women could do no right and everything that was wrong with the social system which otherwise would have been perfect was actually wrong because of women now endogamy exo is outwards endo is inwards exogamy is marriage within the same caste um and exogamy is uh, marriage outside of the same caste now there's a little bit of the, this is a little confusing this is on 185 so i'm going to talk about this in a little detail not a lot the discussion begins with the idea of endogamy and exogamy how endogamy is the root of the caste system and how it plays uh paves the way for violence against women in the society so endogamy is the root of the caste system brahmins usually say that if brahmins marry outside of their caste then their blood is going to get impure and so marrying outside of the caste is prohibited which means that endogamy is uh, is favorable right um but uh but in but since primitive uh, but since the time of uh, you know primitive history um india in in india um 
मैरिज विद इन सपिंड सपिंड इज बिलोंगिंग टू द सेम पिंड बिलोंगिंग टू द सेम लिनेज राइट ब्लड किन्स एंड सगोत्र विच इज दे बिलोंग टू द सेम क्लास दैट इज एक्चुअली कंसिडर्ड सिन सो हियर इज अ लिटल बिट ऑफ कॉन्ट्रोडिक्शन विद द वे दैट मनू टॉक्स अबाउट एंडोगमी और द वे दैट मनू इज इंटरप्रिटेड फॉर कास्ट प्योरिटी इन दैट सेंस राइट सो इफ यू मैरी आउटसाइड वंस गोत्र देन ऑब्वियसली यू नो देन यू आर बेसिकली मिक्सिंग योर गोत्र विद समबडी एल्स इज गोत्र ब्राह्मण यू नो द ब्राह्मणिक पेट्रिया की अकॉर्डिंग टू रेगे हैज़ फोर्सफुली सुपर इम्पोज एंडोगमी ओवर एक्जोगमी स्प्रेडिंग द फॉल्स बिलीव दैट एक्जोगमी लीड्स टू मिक्सिंग ऑफ ब्लड रिजल्टिंग इन द लॉस ऑफ प्योरिटी ऑफ ब्लड विच ब्राह्मण पेट्रिया की ऑफकोर्स इन्जॉयज सो दे लूज द होल्ड विच दे हैव ओवर द होल सोशल सोशो इकोनॉमिक सिस्टम एक्चुअली सोशो इकोनॉमिक सिस्टम इफ दे प्रैक्टिस एक्जोगमी सो ब्राह्मण्स इन दैट सेंस दे प्रेफर एंडोगमी ओवर दैट अम्बेडकर सेज दैट ब्राह्मणिक पेट्रिया की कंसिडर्स द सेक्शुअलिटी ऑफ सरप्लस वुमेन डेंजरस टू सोसाइटी नाउ द आइडिया ऑफ सरप्लस वुमेन इज बेसिकली अ सरप्लस वुमेन इज समबडी हुज हस्बेंड इज डेड अ सरप्लस मैन इज समबडी हुज वाइफ इज डेड सो बेसिकली विडोज एंड विडोवर्स बट दे आर कॉल सरप्लस मैन एंड वुमेन इन द वे दैट अम्बेडकर एक्चुअली टॉक्स अबाउट इट बिकॉज अम्बेडकर सिंग्स दैट एक्चुअली कैप्चर्स द वे इन विच दीज पीपल आर एक्चुअली ट्रीटेड नाउ सरप्लस वुमेन बिकॉज विडोअर्स विडोज वर कंसिडर्ड टू बी अ बर्डन ऑन द फैमिली बिकॉज अगेन इन द ट्रेडिशनल यू नो हिंदू सिस्टम वुमेन डू नॉट हैव द राइट टू प्रॉपर्टी एंड इवन इफ दे हैव द राइट टू प्रॉपर्टी इट्स नॉट एन एब्सिड्यूट राइट नाउ अलॉट ऑफ दिस इज डिस्कस्ड इन द चैप्टर ऑन दिस इज wait let me just give you the exact the hindu personal laws right uh, that chapter has a long discussion about it i hope you've had some discussions about it as well um so women even if they could inherit property even if their husbands did or their male relatives did leave them property they only had the right to maintain the property they would not have the absolute rights to be able to dispose of the property or to invest the money somewhere else or so on and so forth right so they they did not have any monetary backing at all if the husband was dead hence widows were considered to be uh, you know a financial and a social burden but these women were also considered to be sexually very very dangerous because it was considered that a men would other married men would want to prey on them and b uh, these women would want to go out and uh, you know sort of um, if not marry other men then at least have relationships with other men which would of course be morally disastrous so a lot of the widows were burnt they you know they uh, preferred sati especially the higher caste women they preferred sati rather than living without a husband that was considered and hailed as being virtuous and courageous and even if they were not uh, they did not agree to being sati they were uh, sent to these special widow homes um and um, it it is it is a shameful and uh, it's it's a horrific institution but that institution still exists in places like banaras and varanasi uh, women live in despicable circumstances a lot of them come from very very high caste families but because they are widows they're considered to be uh, you know um ominous they're considered to considered to be impure and of course nobody really wants to take the their financial burden for life so they are sent there so in that case um you know um it was also considered and it was also thought according to ambedkar that if these women uh, stayed within the community then they would want even if you allow them to marry again they would encroach on a man who could uh, you know on on um, on prospective uh, grooms 
who can and who should be reserved for pure women women who have not been married yet so in that sense it was more important to get rid of the widows rather than keep them within the community of course it was the same it was never the same thing for surplus men as it was called so um, and it was it was a very common and this is on 186 right so um when men were widowers surplus men as they were called right they had to continue uh what is called grihast which is the domestic duties so what was preferred in a traditional sort of a setup was this this man be given a child bride not somebody of marriageable age but somebody whom he could take care of from childhood into um, into into womanhood in that sense so not taking away anybody from the not taking away any of the ready brides in a certain sense who should be reserved for other men who are ready for marriage this is what ambedkar talks about <laughs> and um, and ambedkar also looks at it in a slightly marxist perspective and he says that uh, one way in which perhaps this kind of discrimination uh, should be looked at rather than just saying that it's patriarchy so men have all the fun and men have all the rights and women have no rights but uh, perhaps a little bit uh, but if you look at it slightly closely you could also understand it in terms of the kind of economic contribution that men were allowed to make and women were not allowed to make right so in that sense it is of course discrimination because men had education men had uh, you know sort of professional merit in that sense but even if a man was a widower he could still make economic contri- contributions to the society so to take this man away from the society and for him you know and to deny him and to deny him the right of what is called the grihast stage of life according to the vedic hindu system would have been improper because a lot of these men uh, made significant economic contributions women on the other hand were more or less dispensable because most of their labor was spent in running households which anybody else could do but with their professional and educational sort of qualifications a lot of men could not be taken away from the economic system uh, because they made uh, what seemed to be better contributions larger contributions and more important contributions to the economic system um and that of course is there in itself lies you know sort of another discriminatory sort of practice that we have talked about earlier the very fact that the labor that men do which gets monetary value in return they're paid for the work that they do versus the domestic labor that women do is you know of course the importance is given to the kind of work the kind of labor that gets money in return domestic labor is free labor and it is repaid with in a lot of ways uh, with emotional gratitude you are always thankful for your mothers and for your sisters and for your wives to do the work uh, but yet it's not really considered to be work which is worth talking about or which is worth giving a lot of attention to so that's another way of perhaps um, understanding you know the the basis of this kind of discrimination um and also um um right on 186 the last couple of lines of this particular topic the emulation of the practice of subjugation of women became the means of upward mobility for lower classes lower castes and this basically means that because the brahmanic classes because the brahmanic caste and the kshatriyas um had such a stringent hold 
on what was correct in terms of femininity in terms of masculinity in terms of the proper code of conduct for the different genders and i'm saying genders and not sexes right uh, because these castes had such a stringent hold on this and these were considered to be the morally correct ways of living life and social representations how you should appear in society how what is the proper way of being for a woman and for a man for femininity and for masculinity so what started happening was that when the lower classes wanted to appear dignified wanted to appear like they were civilized the only thing that they could do is mimic the upper classes so for a lot of the lower caste people and uh, there's a there's a wonderful um, you know writer historian called charu gupta and she has written a lot about it there's a particular book about, book of hers that um, that you guys should perhaps read if you have the time for it representing dalits um, in indian media right um, in in pre independence media i think that the book is called however if any one of you is interested i can share the book with you and she talks about how um during the during the late uh, independence period in the early 20th century um pre independence period sorry during the uh, late pre independence period which is the late freedom struggle period early 20th century that was a time when some dalits because of the political um discourse about harijans about dalits which gandhi had started and his efforts and ambedkar's efforts to drive them into the fold of economic mobility or of political uh, you know fluidity in in our political movements in that sense uh, some dalits were able to earn more money than uh, they ever had access to or they could possibly ever do before uh but when these dalits when they had money and when they had to uh represent themselves as uh, respectable men what they did was one of the main things through which they showed themselves as being civilized was curtail the freedom of their women of the women of the house they insisted that the women of their house not go out maintain parda not talk to strange men and so on and so forth dalit women before that despite the hierarchies of relationships between dalit men and women were not um, you know were not burdened with at least these kind of restrictions because the lower classes uh, unfortunately there's no other way of talking about it because dalits and other lower classes and lower caste people they did not have the same kind of economic and social means to be able to earn money to feed their whole families so all the members of the family had to put in some sort of you know they had to make economic contributions to the whole family otherwise even mere survival was very difficult for them so women had to go out and work much like the men and that is the that, that's the way in which you know historically these um these groups of people divided on the basis of their professions have functioned for a very long time but you know representing upward mobility for a lot of them meant that they started uh creating the same systems of discriminations for their women adding on to the ones which already existed to uh you know to show themselves as being respectable so that's that's another um sort of 
an interesting addition to what is being talked about in the chapter on 187 now um usually um, um even for those um, even for those feminists um who look at what buddha has been talking about and how buddha articulates the women problem a lot of them are very critical of what buddhism talks about uh, through especially through a couple of things from journals like mahabodhi and this is given on 187 uh the three uh, problems that uh, feminists have found or usually quote about buddhism is one that buddha actually forbids all interaction with women ambedkar also says that he did actually um you know buddha did actually uh, advocate celibacy but so do almost all other uh, religious and so intellectual systems um the second and the third problems that feminists have with buddhism is one of course is that buddha actually was not uh, very keen on letting women take the parivraj parivraj is the ordination after which women became bhikshus and he 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 um, he advised that the bhikkhuni sang which is the community of the women bhikshuks or disciples they should remain subservient of the bhikkhu sang or the bhikshuk sang right and um and and a lot of people say that um, when ambedkar um, embraced buddhism and even though he said that he was a feminist and he was working towards um you know um trying to remove all manners of discrimination he overlooks these kinds of central tenets of buddhism uh but um rege finds examples from ambedkar's writings where he actually addresses all of these three issues he says that buddha uh, does actually advocate celibacy but he advocates celibacy for both the sexes the other thing that he says is that buddha mentions very very clearly in another place that since the bhikkhu sang which is the bhikshuk sang the male disciple um, you know sort of community had existed for a longer time so uh, it it seemed only practical that the newer uh community of the female uh, bhikshuks or the bhikkhunis they would uh, sort of train under or become the disciples of the male bhikshuks to understand exactly how the um, you know how the system worked um so that is basically what it is the relation is only in terms of uh, you know looking at it as teacher and disciple rather than one of hierarchy as in the bhikshuks did not have more power they just had more experience and that's basically how we have to actually look at it uh, but uh, anambedkar also makes this point he says uh, if you think that that's a problem you should definitely look at what manu has been talking about right um at least buddha says that the bhikshunis can become uh, you know they they can become bhikshuks they can engage in religious and intellectual discussions and and they have the they have that capability right even at the time when uh, buddha was preaching even at even at that time he did not discriminate women on the basis of their gender not the sex but the gender uh, manu on the other hand he acknowledged that women were not fit for anything except for being pativratas except for serving the husbands they did not they did not have any rights at all this is on page number 100 88 he says women have no right to study the vedas that is why their sanskars or rites like the last rites are performed without ved mantras women have no knowledge of religion because they have no right to know the vedas the uttering of the ved mantra is used is useful for removing sin and because women can never utter the ved mantras they are not allowed to do so and so women can never be without sin that becomes an essential condition 
of this Hindu Vedic system which is propagated by Manu in which women essentially by the condition of their birth, by the condition of being who they are, cannot even be redeemed even if they are born with sin. Right? It is, it is according to Manu, you cannot redeem them. They are born in sin and they will die in sin. And for people who actually follow this system, that can, be a, that, that can be a big debilitating and discriminatory sort of a belief to have. And for women to go through all of their lives with this sense of self-conscious anxiety about being part of such a system also. But uh, for those women who actually believe this to be true, it can be very, very debilitating. And of course, there are lots of women who actually believe it to be true social engineering works in that in that in that way right so um, a lot of these anxieties about what Buddha actually talks about and how Buddha or Buddhism is actually discriminatory towards women Ambedkar also says that a lot of it was also because the Brahmins were very um, they, they were scared um, you know when um, alternate religions like Buddhism and Jainism actually came about <coughs> they were born in India right both of the religions but the Brahmins were a little scared that if women came to know and if the Shudras or if the discriminated classes of all sorts on the basis of gender or on the basis of caste, if they came to know about these uh, alternate religions where there is no caste system, where there is no hierarchy, where people are given the same um, kind of at least opportunities, what they make of those opportunities is different. But where women, uh, where people are at least given the same kind of opportunities irrespective of their gender and irrespective of their caste, then a lot of women, a lot of Shudras, a lot of Dalits would actually leave the uh, Varna system, the, you know, the Brahmanic system um, and they would actually move towards these alternate religions and a lot of that was also true a lot of the Dalits, a lot of the Shudras, Atishudras, they actually joined alternate religious systems like Buddhism, like Jainism a lot of them became Arya Samajis also, so um, uh, what they feared actually came to pass but it is according to Ambedkar, it's because of these kind of anxieties that the Brahminical system had because of which these kind of lies were propagated about Buddhism and about alternate systems now, uh, if you have to understand exactly how this kind of discrimination actually works uh, through the you know, through the Manu system, through the system uh, or the socio-economic system which follows the Manu Smriti. Um, one of the examples, one of the most prominent examples is that of mixed marriages. Now, uh, and this Ambedkar also talks about, um, according to Ambedkar, Manu or, uh, or, or the particular group of people who were involved in or whose profession it was to interpret Manu Smritis, who were called Smriti Kars, Right, who who was according to the official designation, they were the analysts of Brahmanic law. But in a lot of cases, these were people who believed and who um, set forth the rule of Manusmriti and who uh, saw to it that that law and that rule was actually upheld. Um, so a lot of them they talk about uh, what is called a mixed caste. What happens when both the parents don't belong to the same caste? Right, um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Smriti cars, and there are a lot of names given here, Ven, Pulaksa, and then later on also there are others. Uh, they give different kinds of names. They give different names for different categories. 
and that can be very very confusing and you know hard to keep track of that is one thing so that basically shows that the manu smriti is and uh, a lot of the smriti karas use different categories or different names different names for the same category as manu so manu is obviously is it's not the standardized text in that sense and here ambedkar is actually trying to criticize manu smriti by the way it has been interpreted so in places where it suits the brahmins where it the places where it suits patriarchal brahmanism uh, they actually follow it word by word verbatim but in places like these where you can clearly see the aberrations of how manu smriti understands particular kinds of social interactions and how other people later on after manu like the smriti cars how they've interpreted the same social interactions in completely different ways that aberration is usually not looked at or usually not given any importance so ambedkar says if you have to follow something you have to uh, address at least these kind of aberrations as well so for example um for instance the progeny and this is on 189 the progeny born out of union between a shudra father and a kshatriya mother is called a kshatri by manu um, and by pulaksa it's called the oshanas and by vena they are called the vashishts and there are a lot of other examples as well right um uh, manu says that the nishad caste is a conjugation of a brahmin father shudra mother uh, suta samhita says that uh, it is a brahmin father and a vaishya mother and vashisht said that it originated from a vaishya father and a shudra mother so there are all of these different ways in which you know the same uh, caste or the same combination of, of social interaction is usually understood and then uh, there is a quotation i'm going to read half of it okay just just for uh, just for furthering the argument the nishads were a native tribe with its own independent territory and its own kings the ramayan mentions guha as the king of the nishads whose capital was srirangavirapura and who showed hospitality to ram when he was undergoing exile in the forest so there are these uh, and if if you believe in the historicity and the validity of the ramayan if you think that ramayan is uh, is is a cultural purveyor of moral of morality and we should believe it more than anything else then ramayana actually tells a completely different story from what manu says and then there are others who will say other things as well so which one do you actually believe um and uh, a lot of these castes were actually independent in origin and still manu and the rest of the smriti karas insist on calling them either mixed mixed castes and a lot of these mixed castes um and the word actually the term mixed caste was in a lot of places it was used as a euphemism for illegitimate children or bastard children so a lot of these castes were seen as being less important or not given the patrilineal rights of their parents specifically of the father of course because they were considered to be outsiders to the community or the caste of their own fathers so wherever it suited them a lot of these castes a lot of the people who belong to these castes castes were actually deprived of their um, property and of other inheritance rights uh, but where it suited them they were actually seen as examples of uh, you know examples of this kind of an established established sort of a caste system so that's also um, of course that is also problematic uh, but uh, a lot of historians say that the castes which uh, manu actually incorporates as uh, illegitimate or bastard castes in that sense they were actually independent castes and just to include them within the varna system to show the universality of the varna system manu actually manipulated the historical origins 
or uh, later smritikaras manipulated the historical origins of these castes so of course that's a problem um, another in- interesting uh, you know problematic is the chandal caste um, <laughs> And uh, Manu says that the Chandal caste is born out of a conjugation of a Brahmin mother and a Shudra father. But historically, Rege says that if you look at the number of Chandals there are, as in the, as in um, the number of the the um, you know the strength of the community, it's such a large community that if you were to think that that was actually true, then it suggests Rege suggests that. Even if every Brahmin female was a mistress of a Shudra, it could not account for the vast number of Chandals in the country. But again, where does the fault lie when you start looking at this? He says that even if you believe this to be true, even if you were to say that this is true of the Chandal caste, what does it tell you about the women of the Brahmin caste? It says that these are all women who would not adhere adhere to or who did not follow the only code of morality which was taught to these women which is uh, a sort of loyalty towards their husbands to the patriarchal systems all of these women were women of what is called quote unquote uh, you know um, uh, problematic sexuality and so in that sense within the patriarchal system it is a kind of character assassination for all of these women and for the whole caste as well um, but according to uh, Ambedkar the failure of the strict adherence to the practice of endogamy results in mixed castes right so because you can't follow the strict rules of endogamy which is to marry within your own caste which is why that is when you have a lot of mixed castes but even if you have mixed castes it seems that men are never blamed for it right it's usually whenever the blame happens for these kind of transgressions it's usually leveled at this uh, you know it's usually leveled at women which is also of course uh, you know problematic another thing uh, another problematic area is when manu talks about anulom anulom is according to manu a process or a ritual or a case actually where the bride's caste is lower than the bridegroom's caste that kind of marriage is called an anulom and manu actually mentions eight forms of marriages and how in some forms the progeny in a mixed marriage inherits actually the varna of the mother right so for for any kind of progeny to take the varna of the mother and Manu says this happens when the mother's caste or varna is two degrees lower than that of the father but in any case for a patriarchal sort of a brahminical theology theologian and you know lawgiver like Manu for him to say that in any conceivable situation or any conceivable condition for a child to have the mother's gotra and be taken away from the father's gotra in which case there would be severe economic and social repercussions also because the child has validity in 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 the patriarchal hindu society the child has validation only when the child whether whether a boy or a girl 
when the child gets the name of the father so the child in a patrilineal system also inherits the property from the father only when it is given the name the caste the identity of the father so in the matrilineal system the child would not have those kind of rights or at least those kind of rights would be problematic so for somebody like manu to even suggest that this is possible within the larger scheme of his philosophy it seems like uh, it, it seems like an aberration it seems like something which is not you know in a, which is not um, consistent with what he says in other places and then ambedkar also talks about how uh, you know religion is also fairly problematic the hindu gods and goddesses are also problematic he dissects both the ramayan and the mahabharat and the gods of ram as well as krishna for the kind of um, discriminations that they level uh, ram levels against sita um, when ram questions the chastity of sita because she has been say, staying uh, in lanka with ravan but then again nobody asks the same question of ram nobody says you also been living alone where is the proof that you've done that that you've not been infidel in the same way after uh, lavan kush are actually born and it's so very convenient that sita goes away and then she gives birth to two sons the heirs in a patrilineal sort of a kingdom and then she comes back and uh, she comes back only for as long as it's required for lavan kush to be sent off to the you know sent off to ram's kingdom so that he he has heirs two male heirs nonetheless and then he again questions sita's chastity even though she has been living in an um, you know um, in a hermitage for all of this while uh, but sita says i've had enough and she thinks that she'd rather die than actually go back to ram because of course he's been very very unfair and uh, the kind of the kind of ideal that is made out of ram is of course also very very problematic because in the social context if you look at it objectively it shows that um, you know um, because it's mythology and because it's been happening for such a very long time people choose not to look at the situation uh, even though it's just a story objectively and actually to see the cracks in that story the discriminations which are inherent in that story but choose rather to believe in a story blindly just because tradition asks them to do so and that actually goes against what is commonly held to be the most important trait of humans which is common sense and logic so he says that it's very problem ambedkar has all, all, always held that you know it is it is very problematic how these things are blindly accepted krishna is exactly the same all of his wives yeah and he had 16000 wives he was of course he was famous for being unfaithful to his wives which is not these are not principles that are actually advocated uh, by uh, a vedic hindu society anywhere else and yet in gods is perfectly fine they are they called to be emulated each one of his eight chief wives was actually carried away or abducted so in that sense abduction is also validated by um, you know validated by religious uh, mythology and he he says that arjun should do exactly the same thing to subhadra also right um in in that sense what is what becomes very obvious is that in these kind of narratives in these kinds of narrative religious narratives it becomes very very obvious that what is most important in these narratives is to show how these men were important how these men were courageous how they fought great battles uh, what it does to the other half of the society what it does to the women who are part of the same narrative and how their lives and how their identities are used up 
to create a male-centered narrative is almost never given any importance. Now, the next section is a discussion of the Hindu Code Bill, which wanted to do a lot of things, uh, including allowing women to have independent financial status and decision-making capabilities. Um, and it uh, divorce uh, was to be allowed for women if they wanted they could do so after divorce or in the period of separation women should be given a, you know a sort of a maintenance fee because women were not allowed to either uh, educate themselves or have professions so they had no other means of maintaining their lives even the basic standard of life so uh, men should be you know sort of given the responsibility of that that was another thing that was part of the Hindu code bill and then um, you know proposed equal status and share of property for the son and for the daughter and this would have been according to Ambedkar it would have been apart from Stridhan. Uh, Stridhan is an idea which is already discussed in the earlier chapter of the Hindu personal law right so all of these kind of things and um, you know all of these were actually rejected by the upper class Brahmin um, um, you know, uh, members of the Constituent Assembly because they said that if you pass all of these bills then it is going to lead to a destabilization of what is primarily a Hindu society and Ambedkar tried to uh, sort of argue against it to say that a large portion of your country is also Dalit and they face this kind of discrimination and passing these kind of laws empowering women, empowering Dalits is actually going to lead to an empowerment of the whole society but of course his ideas were rejected outright the bill never actually came to pass and he left the constituent assembly um, however um, you know it is what it is and we are left with the kind of a legal and discriminatory socio-political religious economic system that we have uh, right now and that's where it ends uh, if you have any questions please get back to me